Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by Bloomberg Opinion columnist Bob Burgess. He's an editor of Bloomberg Opinion, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Bob, I think I speak for Lisa and most of our audience when I say over the last two or three days, we've all had to brush up on the repo market. What does it mean? Is it important? Do I care? So, Bob, do I care about what's going on in the repo market? It's been kind of squirrely the last few days. Yes and no. I I think that... um when people hear that there's dislocations going on in the repo market, they have nightmares and flashbacks back to the financial crisis. That's right. right? Because this is one area that really roiled markets. But there's a sense that what's going on in the repo market now uh, is much different than what happened back then. Now it's more of a technical uh, move that we're seeing where uh, you have a confluence of events coming together that is pushing up these overnight uh, borrowing costs. Back then, borrowing costs are rising because banks didn't trust each other, which was a major problem. It's not really the reason why repo rates are rising right now. I guess that it gets to the heart of this real fear in markets right now. Will there be sort of a winning out of the global slowdown that will uh, plunge a hole in the equity rally? Or will we see some sort of everything rally continue, which we have been seeing? And I guess uh, this was something you addressed in a recent column where you're talking about what markets need for this everything rally for bonds, stocks, currencies, commodities, everything to rally together. So what is it that they need? Right. I, you know, this is one of those rare years. Uh, you have the global stock market, the global bond market, uh, the global commodities market, and currency returns all poised to deliver positive uh, returns uh, for the first time since 2010. Um, Bank of America uh, recently came out with their monthly survey of institutional clients, and they uh, identified three things that would likely keep the, as you put it, the everything rally going. Uh, one of those is German fiscal stimulus. Uh, the second is a 50 basis point rate cut from the Federal Reserve. And the third is uh, Chinese infrastructure spending. But when you look at it, it looks like only two of those three things are likely to happen. Um, The Germans, um, instead of talking about uh, borrowing uh, to blow out his budget for for, uh, fiscal spending, it's actually talking about sticking with a balanced budget. Um, so the Germans are austere. So we're not going to get any fiscal spending from the Germans. How shocked are you? I'm, I'm not shocked at all. Okay. Nobody else I think should be shocked <laughs> no at all as, as, as well. Um, the uh, second thing, the 50 basis point rate cut from the Fed is increasingly looking less likely by the hour. Um, you know, there's even a couple of strategist reports out over the past couple of days that says maybe the Fed shouldn't even cut rates, uh, mainly because of the consumer is relatively strong 
in the U.S. You know, Brown Brothers Harriman is one firm that says maybe the Fed shouldn't cut rates. So a 50 basis point rate cut is definitely off the table. You might get 25 basis point rate cut today. We'll see what they say about the outlook. Uh, the third point, uh, Chinese infrastructure spending, that's actually happening. Um, you know, the Chinese recently um, introduced a proposal to uh, allow local uh, municipalities to sell bonds to increase their infrastructure. So the bottom line is the outlook for global risk assets seem to be dimming at this point. So, Bob, it is uh, Fed Day today. Mm-hmm. It's not just repo day. It's actually Fed uh, Rate Decision Day. If the Fed were to come out with, uh, you know, perhaps something less dovish, a little bit more hawkish, saying, "Hey, you know, the data is not is actually pretty solid. We're pretty good where we are." I'm not sure the markets are prepared for that. I, I, I would agree. I, I think the markets have been um, uh, have been anticipating a very dovish Fed. But look at the housing starts data that came out this, yep. uh, this morning. I mean, it, the, 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 you know, the biggest monthly increase in housing starts since, since 2007. Uh, consumer spending has been surprisingly strong. Uh, so there are these metrics that suggest that the economy is doing pretty good. That said, we know from history that the consumers uh, can lose confidence pretty quickly. If you look at every recession going back to 1970 at the very beginning of the recession is when the unemployment rate reached its bottom okay so don't be fooled by a low unemployment rate saying the economy is strong if companies feel that the outlook is getting dimmer they'll start laying off workers that unemployment rate will shoot up and that's when you'll see consumers start pulling back how much do you think that uh, equity markets would sell off if the fed indicated yes they're going to cut 25 basis points uh today but going forward uh, who knows? You know, it's, it's 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 hard to say, but if you look at the rally this year in the U.S. stock market, the S&P 500 is up 20%. That's despite um, economists forecasting a recession coming next year. That's despite strategists actually cutting their earnings estimates for this year. So how do you explain that? Well, the, the only way you can explain the rally in the stock market this year is from ever lower interest rates, right? Simple discounted cash flow analysis suggests that you know, future earnings are more valuable now when you assign a lower interest rate. If the Fed says maybe interest rates aren't going to be as low as the market is expecting, there's gonna to need to be a repricing. Bob Burgess, thank you so much for being with us. Bob Burgess is editor for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. U.S. home construction surged in August to the fastest pace since mid-2007, showing ongoing strength and accelerating strength on the heels of lower mortgage rates. What does this mean for the United States housing market? Joining us here to discuss, Melissa Reagan, head of U.S. research for Nuveen Real Estate, which oversees $125 billion of assets. Melissa joins us here in our interactive broker studios. So, Melissa, can you just give us a sense of the increase in home construction how do you see this sort of in the bigger picture and what's going on in how builders are responding to lower mortgage rates? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So I think the numbers are really strong. You know, housing starts up 6.6% year over year, August, at 12% during the month. Uh, I, I really focus in on the multifamily market, and that was extremely strong as well, uh, with it was like 445,000 starts 
And wasn't that kind of driving it? Was the apartment buildings uh, and things like that? So the majority is driven by single family. So if you, in context of that 1.364 million, uh, 919 was single family, and then the the, the 450 was was multifamily. Um, so when you put it in that context, I think a lot of it was driven by uh, in migration in kind of the southern region regions. And you think of the southeast, southwest, uh, that's where you saw a lot of really strong demand. And that's completely consistent with where you're seeing population in very strong levels of in-migration, right? You've probably read the headlines. Population is actually falling in places like San Francisco and New York, um, to some extent L.A., and I think this is a reflection of that. And very strong demand for multifamily, uh, just as people still continue to want to rent. So is this strong housing market that we've been seeing, is it just simply a function of everybody's got a job and mortgage rates are low and appear to be going lower? Are those the two main drivers? Partly, right? So I, I look at it, that's definitely true on the single family home starts angle of it. Uh, mortgage rates are low. But you also have to remember from that perspective, I think you need to put in context, it, you know, single family starts peaked at like 1.7 million right before the crisis, right? So this is still pretty low in a historical context or from a peak perspective. From a multifamily perspective, starts are actually, at, I wouldn't say historically high, but they've been elevated for a while. And that is definitely due to strong in-migration, demand for rentals, the millennials, you know, not being able to afford a home at this point. So it's all kind of one in the same, the home ownership versus the rental single family starts being down from their peak it's it's all interrelated so to speak yeah well uh so paul and i were in nashville not so long ago and i was struck by all of the construction cranes in downtown nashville which makes sense given the fact that a number of businesses are moving from places like new york to nashville and there certainly is out migration from the bigger cities to places like nashville at what point is it overbuilding right i mean especially if uh there is somewhat of a downturn and the jobs remain in the big cities and some of these other ones uh do lose out like we saw in 2008 and 2009 yeah, absolutely. I think, listen, I think the big cities will, they're not going anywhere. And so sometimes the headlines get a little overstated if population fell and they try to make this seem dramatic. Big cities are not going anywhere. Uh, to the extent, what I do think has happened in places like Nashville is they have changed who they are from 15 years ago. So Nashville, and you could think of Charlotte, Raleigh, Austin all being in that same kind of category 15 or 20 years ago did not have the vibrancy the people the businesses and today they they do and I think they will have staying power uh, in a downturn in the next cycle um, but yes to the extent that you want to have a certain job right think about finance that's that's largely going to still be in New York so um, it, you know we're 10 plus years into this economic cycle so Yet, you know, the real estate, the consumer is still strong. How are you folks at Nuveen on your real estate investments? How are you kind of positioning yourselves now? I mean, at some point, this has all got to end. We, you know, it's not that long ago that we, we still have the memories of the financial crisis in there and the real estate issues. So how are you guys positioning your portfolios? Yeah, I think at this point, you realize you're, you're late in the cycle. And I think that's just consensus at this point. We all, we all know that. And so what we do is we think about the sectors we want to be in that we think will actually provide us with a protection in a downturn. So some of those have been more of the alternative property types, uh, which tend to still grow in a downturn. Alternative. Alternative, yeah. So, when, so you can think of self-storage, or you can think of senior housing, or you can think of manufactured housing. Got it. Things that, that actually do pretty well in a downturn just because of the demand drivers. At the same time, when you think about uh, apartments or offices, industrial or, or retail, we just get more selective. 
Um, and we get really focused on making sure we're focused on high quality location. Price obviously um, is, is a factor in that as well. So you just narrow down the opportunity set and be, you'd be more selective in the investment process. One thing I'm trying to understand is the amount of money getting raised for real estate funds at this point in the credit cycle, because you're saying it's consensus, we're late cycle. Why is Blackstone, for example, raising an unprecedented amount of money for commercial real estate? Uh, And you see a whole other uh, host of fund managers doing the same. Is this for now or is this for a downturn? I do think in some sense, if, if you're an investor who looks at it from a multi-asset perspective, if you're an investor who has stocks, bonds, and then you think about real estate or real assets, what you think about is in a downturn, real estate or real assets can provide me with some pure diversification relative to my stock or bond portfolio. And I think there's a lot of that going on. And I think investors saying, hey, I've probably been under allocated to real estate, real assets, you know, for for probably 20 years now, and it's time to start upping that allocation, you know, to call it 10 or 15% of my portfolio. It's almost just a pure diversification play, if nothing else. Is there any sense that the commercial or real estate or, or residential real estate market is overheating at all at the moment? Yeah, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about that for probably five years now. I would say, okay. I mean, yep. really, um, and, and because people have seen the cranes in Nashville for more than five years now and so you have a lot of those questions the demand has kept up so from an apartment perspective uh, you still have rents growing above inflation demand is there you do see oversupply in certain pockets of of the southern regions like a dallas or a houston Um, but by and large i would say supply and demand have kept in sync So, so really strong demand for apartments even with the supply just uh, quickly here, which market do you see as having the most potential upside here uh, in the U.S. at this point? That's a great question. Um, we're, we're really favoring some of the more tech-driven markets. Um, you could think of San Francisco, L.A., San Diego, Portland. Um, but we also like some of the southern regions, too. Um, still think there'll be good demand in migration in places like Nashville, um, who've really changed their stripes of who they are as a city. Melissa Reagan, thank you so much for joining us. Melissa is the head of U.S. research for Nuveen Real Estate with about $125 billion under management on the real estate side. She joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We saw, again, uh, more evidence today with the new housing starts and new, uh, you know, the real estate market in the U.S. Uh, remains very solid. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
Well, it is Fed Day, but it's not your typical Fed Day. Instead of obsessing over what we might hear from the Fed this afternoon, we're talking about a little-known part of the capital markets, and that is the overnight federal repo market. To get the latest, we welcome Hugh Nicola, Principal and Head of Fixed Income at GenTrust with about $2 billion under management, and Alex Harris, bond reporter for Bloomberg News, both joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Alex, let's start with you. Just give us a latest on what is going on with this three-day story about the federal repo market. Um, well, so it kind of had started building actually last Friday. You were starting to hear about withdrawals from the money market funds to cover that corporate tax payment. And then Monday, everything kind of came to a head because you had collateral coming in. And so from these treasury coupon auction settlements, um, but then, you know, there's some X factors and things that we're still trying to sort through. There were rumors flying around about, you know, Saudi Arabia pulling cash out of the funding markets to shore up, you know, their liquidity after the attacks. You were, you know, so I'm hearing a few different things, but ultimately that was sort of the crux of it is the supply demand imbalance. And so, it, you know, repo got really unstable. And with it, it just pulled all these other rates up. Uh, the secured overnight financing rate, which regulators are looking at as sort of the air presumptive to LIBOR, shot up. And even today, you know, the setting for, for as of yesterday was 5, 5.25%. That was a 280 basis point move. And then more concerning is that the Fed funds rate, the Fed's policy target rate, moved out of the range today. It's at 230 and the Fed's benchmark range is two to two and a quarter percent. And that's more concerning here. And even though repo is starting to sort of normalize, things are calming down. What's, what's more worrisome in the long run is that the Fed has lost control. It's the perception that the Fed's lost control of the benchmark and of policy and the transmission mechanism. And so I think that's now what the meeting becomes today is, you know, what kind of steps is Jerome Powell and the FOMC going to take here to kind of, you know, help keep, you know, the Fed funds rate within its target range and keep things sort of under control and controlling those short term interest rates. Hugh, uh, how are you viewing the repo disruption of this week? So um, first of all, thank you for having me here. Um, I don't think, uh, in, in you know, in uh, in summary, I don't think it's a huge deal, right? I mean, we need to worry about this market, right? I mean, this is an important market for the financial industry, right? I mean, for it's a lifeblood essentially financing of uh, of the of the financial industry. So we've got to keep an eye on it. if there are issues with liquidity or if there's some break in the system. We need to know what's going on. But that being said. You know, this isn't a problem that the Fed isn't, was unaware of. I mean, they talked about essentially a faci- repo facility, a permanent repo facility in, um, in June, putting it in place. They knew that they were drawing down on excess reserves over time. I mean, that's been a longstanding trend. We've seen reserves coming down. So we knew reserves were leaving the system. Um, so I think the shock was just how dramatic it was. Right. So um, as Alex mentioned, you had essentially the auctions that settled on Monday. You also had ta- corporate tax payments took a lot of money on the system, and suddenly you see repo rates up 8%, 10%. Just to be staggering. clear, as we talk about this, for people who don't know what repo rates are, aren't familiar what we're actually talking about, it's basically banks offering treasuries, other high-quality securities. Uh, it's a sort of uh, as collateral for cash from other firms. And basically, because there wasn't enough cash on the balance sheets of these other firms, they were demanding a much bigger premium uh, for that cash, right? Just to sort of lay this out there to give people a sense of what we're talking about. Carry exactly. On. It's a collateralized loan, right? So, uh, <laughs> okay. Right? I mean, I think Except it's important co- to think about this because basically I, I that's agree. why people are talking about a cash crunch because there was not enough 
physical cash on the balance sheets of other firms to make this a sort of seamless process, right? That's I mean, precisely that's, right. Yes. Well, I mean, but the other issue is, is that you also have to think about it from the collateral side, that there, you know, one of the takeaways from this is just, there are just too many treasuries in the system. And this is a problem because treasuries pile of debt is only gonna grow. I don't see anything about deficit reductions. I don't see anything about debt reduction. Like that's only gonna continue to grow. And that's why people are really now getting nervous about the fourth quarter because treasury bill supply is gonna resume its March higher. Treasury's cash buy is going to continue to grow. And that actually pulls reserves out of the system. So like Hugh talked about with this, you know, reserve scarcity level with the Fed, it becomes a bit more problematic because you're really hitting those precarious levels. And that's what the market is really worried about going forward. So Hugh, does this affect your kind of overall investing view in any way, shape or form? Or are you kind of viewing uh, everything the same way you did before? You know, I think the Fed uh, will have a handle on this. I mean, we're bound to see an announcement today on something, um, particularly with the meeting coming up later today. Uh, So, no, I'm not worried Uh, right now. I'm not worried. It doesn't really affect us per se. How does this affect investors in general? It's essentially if this kind of panic bleeds into other markets, right? And then from other financial markets into the real economy. That's the worry. Um, I think we've got a handle on it right now. So, no. Not concerned at the moment. Are you buying bonds? Or do you think yields go lower? Well, on this, new, I wouldn't. I'm not buying no, bonds not based this, on this. Not news. on this, but just in general. Uh, that's a thirty tough, seconds. Uh, you know, um, you know, I've been of the mind that you you buy dips because I think that uh, it seems recently that you know that a lot of and once first we had a lot of good news for bonds, trade war being good news for bonds, uh, and then we had uh, and then we had a sell off. We had some negative news, so it's difficult to see that this that the trade war tweeting, et cetera, won't continue and won't ramp up at some stage. And that, you know, I like bonds. Hugh Nicola, thank you so much for being with us, principal and head of fixed income at GenTrust, overseeing about $2 billion. Of course, he likes bonds. He focuses on fixed income, although it doesn't necessarily <laughs> translate. Always, Alex Harris, thank you so much for being with us. Bloomberg uh, News bond reporter explaining how the repo market is kind of uh, affecting everything right now. Well, diversity in the workplace continues to be a challenge for most industries, including the financial services industries. To get the latest, we welcome Tracy Davies. She is president of Money 2020, based in London, but joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Tracy, thanks so much for joining us. And I've spent most of my career in the financial services industry, and I've seen the the, the challenge of promoting and creating diversity in the workplace. And I know the industry tries very hard as I'm doing, you know, what I think a pretty good job, but still at the highest levels, there's probably isn't the proper representation of women, for example. What do you think is going on in the financial services industry? Yeah, well, I think the financial services industry is is not alone. Um, There are are many industries, it's not a a problem just for this industry. Um, It does seem to be a little off pace, though, compared to, say, some of the industries like my industry in the media. If you look at the latest stats, I think we've got in the US about 24% of the exec committees now women versus, say, 30% now that we've gone through in the UK. So I think there is still, I mean, it's not 50-50, so there's still work to go. But you're right. There are a lot of companies making a lot of progress, and I think that's uh, really important and really exciting. So I think we are seeing a shift now. 
And there's actually going to be an emphasis on this at the uh, at the Money 2020 conference focused yeah. on uh, fintech and some of the uh, financial services that's upcoming in October. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so we have a whole program dedicated to this called Rise Up, uh, which is about empowering women um, and enabling them to the next step. There's a load of talented women out there. We run a program to accelerate. So we did this last year. Uh, it's our second year. Last year's cohort, 33% have been promoted into more senior roles. So we see that as direct legacy of launching Rise Up and inspiring and connecting them because what we do is we connect them to senior folk in the industry, senior mentors. This is a really important thing. So um, we are seeing progress. That's interesting. You, you, you uh, talk about the, the mentorship and I yeah. know that's something that's very important for, for everyone uh, in all walks of life, but certainly in, in business. Do women have a particular challenge kind of creating those relationships and getting that kind of support? Yeah, I think... What we see is not just financial services, but generally women, I think, spend less time investing in networks. And that's one of the really important things that we drive. Uh, we enable that network connection, but invest more time in, in um, building your network. I think there's a really interesting debate around sponsorship and networking and mentoring. And women seem to have less sponsors in organizations. And so I know that's a real focus from some organizations. Mentoring and sponsoring are different, um, but we've seen great results. So we're super pleased. So let's talk a little bit about this conference uh, in October being hosted by Money 2020. It's going to focus on uh, financial technologies and I think immediately of how well Square and Stripe and some of these other companies have done so far this year. I'm wondering, what do you think will be sort of the buzzword of the conference this year? Well, there's always a lot to talk about. I think there's a, a couple of really big ones that are standing out at the moment. So there's a, uh, we see uh, there's a big focus on digital banking now in the, in the US. So we've got CEOs of Chime, N26, that's coming from Europe, uh, uh, Grasshopper. So we're seeing a lot of the new banks, the neo banks, the digital banks. I think that's a big talking What's point. What's the difference between a digital bank and a bank that has online presence? Well, there are no branches and they're often very, very digitally based and app based. So okay. they don't have branches. Okay. Um, so the uh, other big talking point is obviously the developments around Facebook and uh, Calibra. We've announced last week David Marcus is speaking. So I think that's going to be a big talking point. There's a lot of people uh, interested to know what that's all about. Uh, so I think they're two really big talking points this year. And we do have Stripe speaking as well. So Will Gabriel will speak. So we just see constant innovation here in the US, but we do this around the world. You know, this, there is, it is changing. We just see constant change coming through in a good way for the consumer, I think. Lisa and I, a couple weeks ago, spent uh, some time at a fintech conference in, in Boston. We, mm. we, we learned a lot. One of the things we, we heard was that there is a lot of investment in technology mm -hmm. on the, mm -hmm. in the financial services industry. We even, you know, we hear from the Goldman Sachs, the world, and the JP Morgans. But how about some of the smaller, mid-size financial institutions? Are they at risk of not, of kind of getting lost um, because they don't have, maybe have the capabilities, the wherewithal to make the big technological invention, uh, investments? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, we see companies of all scale, and it's one of the things that you see coming out of Money 2020 is people making those connections. So whether they're, obviously there's a lot talked about the large companies, but you know, a lot of the mid-sized companies working with the right startups, so much about this industry is about partnerships and finding those partnerships. So it's exactly why Money 2020 was created. So you can have the big, the small, the middle, uh, that's what we do, we have over 10,000 
thousand people in Vegas in October, and they're all there working out who to work with. Uh, it's so I think there is as much opportunity. You think about uh, who to work with, and you think about getting in a, in a room and saying, you know, should we work together? It might work. I also think of consolidation and somebody coming yeah, and yeah. saying, I want to buy you. Uh, how much more of that kind of activity do you expect? Yeah, well, there's been a, a lot of consolidation. I think the the, the TSIS one was confirmed this morning. So, you know, we do see uh, there's been some consolidation in payments, but that's about getting global scale. Uh, this is a global industry. There's a lot of global opportunity out there. So we've seen some very big ones. Um, you know, so it's been a, quite a talking point this year. Um, you know, M&A is, is a fact of life, so we may see some more, but we've seen some big ones this year. But it's about global scale because there's a really big global opportunity. Payments is a really hot sector. People want to be in it and they want global scale. And that's what the uh, consolidation has been about. How important was it that Libra came in to the marketplace in terms of maybe validating the whole blockchain or financial, you know, digital payments? How, how important was that? I think it's an important development. I think there's a lot of debate about it. I mean, that debate is, you know, it's only been announced quite recently, this development. Uh, there's a lot of interest from regulators. You've had the hearings here. So I think it's a big talking point. I think people are still trying to work their way through. What does this mean? What's the impact going to be, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a big talking point. Although there is also a larger question, which is, are crypto assets, cryptocurrencies going to be more inter- integral in the entire yeah. uh, fintech uh, world? Yeah, I mean, um, that debate is going to run. It's going to be a big debate, uh, Money 2020. That's what we're there to do. You know, we, we are a neutral platform. We make sure that this debate gets hosted, which is why having David Marcus speak at Money 2020 is very important to us. Thank you so much for being with us. Really You're appreciate very welcome. it. Thank Tracy you. Davies is joining us, president of Money 2020, which is going to be held in Las Vegas at the Venetian uh, October 27th through October 30th. More than 10,000 people have already registered. It's it's fintech. As we've heard, and Tracy mentioned, it is a very hot area. Payments, uh, digital payments, fintech in general, uh, really attracting a lot of investor interest. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg P&L podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 